Welcome to Global Perspectives, the International Insolvency Institute's podcast. Welcome back to the International Insolvency Institute's Global Perspectives podcast. My name is Adam Crane, and I am chair of the IIIS NextGen program and co-chair of the IIIS Regional Committee for the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. On today's episode, we are joined by Professor Sumant Batra and Mr. Devanshu Mukherjee, who will be speaking about recent developments to India's insolvency framework. This episode will be moderated by Dr. Eugenio Vacari, who is a senior lecturer with the Royal Holloway University of London. Welcome back to another podcast organized by the IIII NextGen program. My name is Eugenio Vaccari, and I'm a senior lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London, as well as a member of the IIII NextGen Executive Committee. Today, we will give a critical look to the recent changes to the Indian insolvency framework. I'm very grateful to be joined by Professor Sumant Batra and Mr. Debanshu Mukherjee. Professor Batra needs no introduction. He is one of the leading insolvency scholars and practitioners of our time, as well as a previous president of Insol International and a current president of the Insolvency Law Academy. Debanshu is one of the co-founders of the VD Legal Center for Legal Policy, a new daily-based think tank. He advised the Indian government on the design and drafting of the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code and its subsequent implementation. Thanks for being here today. It is well known that India enacted a new Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code in 2016. Why was there a need to update the existing law? Sumant? Well, thank you, Eugenio. Um, thinking back uh, nearly nine years, because it was in 2014 that the reform process was initiated uh, for a new insolvency law, I can recollect four headline issues, if I may call them. The first was that when in 2014, after the election, a new government was formed, the economy was at its low, and there was a need for the new government to provide a fresh impetus uh, for the economic growth, and they wanted to introduce some major reforms, and insolvency reform was one big ticket reform that they could think of, which they felt could actually provide uh, a significant impetus to the economic growth. The second reason was that the Indian banks were loaded with non-performing assets and they were like a, a time bomb ticking, uh, waiting to explode. And there was definitely a sense of urgency to deal with those assets, uh, which otherwise had the potential of being brought back into the economy and to contribute to the GDP if right steps were taken. And of course, uh, bringing a fresh energy into the banks so that they could start relending, which had stopped around that time. The third reason was that the prime minister or the government were very keen to uh, ensure that the, that the government of India or the Indian uh, ranking on the on the World Bank's uh, index of ease of doing business continued to, to rise further and perhaps at a greater pace than it had in the past. And there was a clear realization uh, within the government that the uh, insolvency reform was one significant move which could actually help them uh, with a better ranking. And the fourth, and perhaps the immediate provocation or the prompt for the insolvency reforms, as I understand, is that when the Indian Prime Minister Modi visited uh, US on his private trip, though, uh, and met uh, the multilateral organizations and the investors and invited them to invest in India, uh, they all expressed the need for uh, an insolvency law as well, besides, of course, the various other incentives that were offered to them to, to come to India. and. Um, when he heard them and came back to India, he uh, asked the Prime Minister, the Finance Minister, to um, to start these steps for uh, the insolvency law reform. 
And that is how the Bankruptcy Law Reforms Committee was established. And the rest, as they say, is history. Thank you, Suman, for uh, this uh, explanation. Um, Sumant and Banjo, you had an active role in shaping the policy debate and in identifying the priorities that the government should have addressed in their reforms. Can you tell us a bit more about your role in this process? Banjo, do you want to go first? Yeah, thank you so much, Eugenio. Uh, yeah, so I've, as Mr. Batra indicated, soon after this government came into power in 2014, uh, one of the first major reforms that they initiated was uh, the bankruptcy law reforms process. And if I remember correctly, you know, this government came out with its first budget in July 2014, and that budget had a uh, specific item on bankruptcy reforms. But for some reason, that entry related only to bankruptcy reforms relating to small businesses. And around that time, uh, you know, I, along with my other co-founders who had started with the, were looking for, a, you know, areas where, uh, you know, the legal system appears to be broken, appeared to be broken and more could have been done. And bankruptcy was one such area. So we had prepared this concept paper and we had met some bureaucrats in the Ministry of Finance at that time, while the government was parallelly thinking about bankruptcy reforms. And... Uh, one bureaucrat got convinced uh, by what we were proposing and very soon we found out that that uh, project had been expanded from bankruptcy reforms relating to small businesses to something much wider and uh, then the government formed this committee known as the bankruptcy law reforms committee that mr batra talked about and um, the mandate of the committee was to uh, spread the word work out in two phases uh, the first phase involved writing of an interim report where essentially the mandate was to understand the reasons for the failure of the old regime. And the old regime essentially had two parts. There was this old liquidation system overseen by the high courts and this other system under the Sikh Industrial Companies Act overseen by what was known as the uh, Board of Industrial and Financial Reconstruction. And both these regimes were seen to be monumental failures, but the government wanted to understand the reason for this failure in more, a greater detail. And the first report, which is actually available in the public domain, it's called the Interim Report of the Bankruptcy Law Reforms Committee, outlined the reasons for the failure of the system. Then in the second uh, part of the project, which commenced in early 2015, the committee started drafting the new law. And this again went on for about six, eight months. Um, and the unique uh, feature of this exercise was given the fact that they had done the study in the first phase to understand the reasons for the failure of the old system, the, the design was influenced or informed by that exercise. And therefore, uh, the, the law was designed in a manner which was addressing the reasons for failure of the old system. And the second uh, you know, report, and along with the bill, came out in November 2015. Soon thereafter, it was tabled in the parliament. Uh, things moved really, really fast. You know, the parliament, uh, you know, in the parliament, it got referred to a joint committee, uh, which is basically a committee comprising of members of parliament from both houses uh, of, our, of, of our parliamentary system. Uh, there were wide public consultations. Everyone went and made depositions before the parliament. So everyone was consulted. And eventually the law was enacted in May 2016. But the government really didn't stop there. And it kind of kept pushing everyone to implement it as soon as possible. And in record time, that is in about six months from the time it got enacted, the law was rolled out with the regulator being set up, all the rules and regulations put in place, the new tribunals, the national law company law tribunals, which are essentially uh, tribunals to oversee the bankruptcy process, got, you know, got established. And uh, essentially, it was one of the quickest moving reforms. And the reasons were kind of outlined by Mr. Batra, because there was so much of uh, support from the government, the political forces that, uh, uh, and 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 the realization was largely attributable attributable to the re to the reasons that Mr. Batra outlined in his opening remarks. And uh, eventually, we had this law after so many so many years of a completely dysfunctional bankruptcy system. And we were fortunate to be part of that, and we continue to be uh, involved in you know the 
uh, in the ongoing reforms process uh, in the in the form of providing research and drafting assistance. So we are very fortunate uh, to have played a role, uh, a small role in this very large project. Thanks, Devanshu. Samant, do you want to add anything? Well, I mean, I, I think Devanshu has uh, been very modest about his and with his contribution. I think their contribution is far more significant than what he uh, chooses to mention uh, out of modesty. And they have played a very, very uh, important role, I must say. And especially when uh, it was being done, when there were very few people in the country who were in a position to make uh, that kind of contribution. Um, my contribution is is a bit strange, Eugenia. I mean, I uh, I would say that my role has been um, largely been on the two sides of the law coming into place. When I say two sides, what I really mean is one to to help prepare the foreground for uh, what this law because. Uh, I've been involved uh, in my little way of trying to persuade the government of India ever since the Indian economy was open for globalization and then massive reforms were introduced to sort of pave the way for India becoming a free market economy from a closed economy in the early 90s. I, I, was, uh, I, I was just at that point of time putting all the might to ensure that insolvency reform comes onto the agenda, which is a very challenging task because there was so much of euphoria about bringing investment into the country and the entire focus was on how to create an ecosystem or reforms uh, which would enable more and more investors to come into the country. And uh, uh, to some extent, insolvency was a taboo word. Uh, it was seen as a, something which carried a negative connotation. So there weren't really too many recipients uh, which were open to the idea of talking about insolvency in the same breath as investment. And that uh, change in mindset was something which took about four to five years. And after that, once they started opening to the idea of uh, discussing insolvency reforms and realizing its importance, that was the time when the interaction with Insol International, the interaction with the World Bank, IMF, and uh, other global uh, entities who were at the forefront of insolvency reforms started. And um, so much so that India held uh, a number of roundtables uh, with the global organizations. Uh, there were a number of delegations that came from outside and uh, a significant progress was made. And so much so that uh, one of the committees uh, that had been set up to reform the Companies Act uh, into improve the corporate governance and ease of doing business uh, was given the mandate to even consider uh, amendments in the insolvency law. And those were made, they shaped into a bill in the parliament, but eventually got passed only in 2018, just a few days before the term of the parliament ended and elections were called. And therefore it was never notified by the, by the, by the president uh, to be made as a, an operative law. And of course, as we've just heard that in 2014, the new government formed and they felt that there was a need to uh, visit this issue afresh. But the fact is that a lot of significant thinking and work had already been done. But when the committee was formed in 2014, uh, as Devanshi mentioned, uh, Bankruptcy Law Reforms Committee, I personally had uh, was on a sabbatical at that point in time. And uh, uh, although the finance minister was very keen, very kind to invite me, but I was not in a position to come back formally and be on the committee. But I did offer my help and I did engage uh, with the committee on the sides uh, and interacted with, with the individual members to be able to sort of uh, share my thoughts to the extent uh, it was possible at that point in time. My active role, or if I may say the direct role, began after the law was passed for the parliament. And that was the time I got pulled in uh, on the committees to draft the regulations. And I worked with BD at that point in time and uh, and together with the other experts who were on the committee, uh, various committees. And, and then uh, it became something which uh, one could call as more intense uh, from just about November of 2016, uh, a month before the law was to be implemented because I was called in to prepare the complete roadmap vision for a very intense, aggressive uh, implementation of the code. And, and that is where, uh, you know, I, I, I like to believe that 
uh, we, together with many other, championed uh, the implementation of the code uh, and ensured that it uh, rolls out very effectively. And uh, the same energy was put in, in implementation as were done uh, in bringing the law into place in such a short period of time. So essentially focusing on four areas. One is capacity building at the country level, at the nationwide level, in all stakeholders. You'll be surprised, Eugenio, that we were holding uh, workshops on a daily basis, training programs on a daily basis, pan-India with different stakeholders, and a larger, smaller number, creating leaders for tomorrow. And, and that, is a, that is the kind of uh, might that was put behind implementation. And I did put in almost two to three years into that. The second contribution I think uh, you know many of us did, not just I, was to ensure that we were there to uh, to support the courts in getting clarity and understanding the nuances of the insolvency law, and to be able to sort of develop jurisprudence, the right jurisprudence that was needed to lay the foundation for this law, uh, because there were many doubts, there were many gray areas in the legislations as well, and the fact that. The objectives, the spirits, the principles uh, of insolvency were not really something which were appreciated or understood by many judges. And they needed assistance from the lawyers and other stakeholders. And I think our focus was also to make sure that we just are able to assist the courts in able to build the right kind of uh, jurisprudence. And of course, there were other issues as well, because then, because the law was being implemented, a number of challenges were identified, number of gray areas and gaps were identified, and we realized from a practical application point of view that there were changes that were required to be made both in the laws and the applications of the regulation, regulations and rules. And that's where, again, Vidhi and I uh, and many others, of course, uh, were constantly in touch with the policymakers and the regulators to ensure that uh, the law stays relevant and be amended from time to time. Uh, and that is how, you know, uh, to a pleasant surprise, the government of India was not at all reluctant to amend the law, even a short intervention, interventions and intervals, and also sometimes even bring out an ordinance uh, to amend the laws when the parliament was not in session. And and so so I would like to summarize uh, uh, my contributions, coupled with that of Vidhi and many others in, in this way, Eugene. Thank you. Um, I would like now to delve a bit more on the characteristics of the Indian insolvency framework. Um, as you mentioned, uh, also for its uh, I mean, genesis and for its evolution, the Indian insolvency framework is for many aspects rather unique. Um, in the preparatory call, uh, you mentioned that trade creditors are not allowed to vote on a plan that the insolvency regulator oversees not only insolvency practitioners, but also the auction process, that there is no direct entry into liquidation, um, and that the rules of course and practitioners uh, have changed significantly over uh, the pre-reformed uh, period. Uh, can you tell us, or can you tell some of our listeners, uh, uh, some? Can you tell us the reasons of these uh, peculiarities? Banjo, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, Eugenio. So uh, starting with the first one, which is about the role of uh, trade creditors in the plan approval process. Now, the way the law is designed, uh, it, it identifies or classifies creditor into creditors into two classes, financial creditors and operational creditors. Again, this is uh, done in a very unique way. Financial creditors are essentially banks, financial institutions, uh, folks who are uh, providing credit. And uh, then you have operational creditors, you know, folks who are providing goods and services uh, to a business uh, who, you know, uh, who also contribute significantly you know, to the operations of a business. But given the peculiarities of the Indian context and given the experience of the pre-IBC insolvency regime, the drafters of the law realized that trade creditors of, often insisted on full payments uh, you know, during the pre-IBC insolvency resolution processes, which made the process uh, very inefficient and prone to litigation. Even if there were some outcomes in those uh, proceedings, 
uh, they never kind of settled with the final outcomes and continued litigating. Uh, and uh, that derailed the process significantly. So while the, you know, the drafters uh, realize that trade territories need to be protected and should have the right to initiate the proceedings, uh, they realize that giving them a right to vote in the proceedings in the Indian context might cause a lot of problems. And therefore, uh, it's only the financial creditors who are empowered to take a call on what kind of plans will be approved and how is it that a company or a debtor will be resolved. Uh, so as I said, a, a trade creditor, if you know, if its payments have not been made, can very well initiate the insolvency proceedings. But once a case is admitted, uh, and you know, an insolvency practitioner comes in, displaces the management, uh, and forms a committee of creditors, it's only the financial creditors who take the final call on what needs to be done. Uh, there are some protections provided for them. Uh, that is, you know, they should be, uh, they should, the plan should make sure that they get, get at least a basic minimum as, as, as part of the entire process. Uh, and, uh, and if, uh, you know, those payments are not made, then, uh, you know, the plan is not, uh, you know, seen as something that complies with the bare, the minimum provisions of, of law and, and the plan can fail and the company can go into liquidation. So that basic protection is there, but the, uh, but the reality is that, uh, in, at least, you know, the, the, the protection, you know, is, uh, in theory is, is a bit diluted in comparison to what trade creditors can get in any other jurisdiction. But in practice, uh, what has actually happened is in most cases, financial creditors, uh, they want to take the trade creditors along and make sure that, uh, the folks, especially the folks who are important for, uh, resolving the entity, they get their dues properly as part of the plan. And, uh, in fact, you know, as per the reported numbers, the recovery rates rates for trade creditors are reasonably good. They are they are nowhere close to the uh, you know the minimum protection, which is essentially the liquidation value uh, that uh, that they are otherwise entitled to. And uh, so, by and large, the system seems to be working well. But of, but of course, there's this perception that uh, this is a problem, given the fact that they don't have a say in the process. And many of these trade creditors are big, sophisticated players, uh, and they might as well contribute to the bankruptcy reform process in a, in a, in a bankruptcy uh, resolution process in a in a very positive way. Uh, so there is a case, perhaps, to revisit that, given the fact that now it's been seven years, and uh, you know some of some of them uh, uh, can actually add value to the resolution process. But uh, uh, you know that's 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 something that that needs to be decided by the government. Uh, so far, it seems to be working reasonably reasonably well, despite their non involvement in the in the plan approval process. Yeah. So broadly, uh, that's it. The next one is uh, about the insolvency regulator. Do you want me to start to talk about that first before giving it to Mr. Batra? Yeah, I think that would be fine. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, another unique feature of the law is the fact that it's overseen by uh, overseen by an insolvency regulator. Uh, you know, the regulator was primarily designed to regulate the insolvency practitioners, uh, you know, which is something which is which is done in other jurisdictions as well. Uh, but in the Indian context, in addition to this responsibility, they also had the responsibility of regulating what were known as information utilities. Now, information utilities are a class of entities which are supposed to collect financial information from creditors ex ante before a company becomes bankrupt. And the idea is that once a company becomes bankrupt and a case is filed, then the system should be able to access all the financial data and, you know, process the proceedings as fast as possible. Uh, this this uh, this entity also needs to be separately regulated and uh, so therefore primarily the insolvency regulator was tasked with these two uh, you know responsibilities regulate the insolvency practitioners regulate the information utilities and at the time of drafting it was believed that given the fact that they will th this regulator will develop some understanding of the uh, uh, bankruptcy processes uh, because of its uh, proximity to the insolvency practitioner and the information utility, it's only uh, logical to empower them to make the delegated legislation uh, for implementing the law. 
because as you know, the primary law can only provide so much guidance. A lot of detail has to come in secondary uh, or delegated legislation. And the government empowered this regulator to make laws for those secondary processes, like how will the auction be conducted? Uh, what will be the roles and responsibilities of an insolvency practitioner when he's running the, running the process? Uh, how will the committee of creditors be formed? How will the process be? How, how will the committee of creditors run the process? So on and so forth. So these three, uh, so so the insolvency regulator essentially is performing these three unique things, which uh, which which may not be present in other jurisdictions. Additionally, it performs two ad additional very important functions. One is it collects data. Uh, from the insolvency professionals about uh, and the ecosystem about how efficiently is the system performing and publishes that, you know, that data on a quarterly basis for everyone to consume. And one of the main reasons why we know how efficiently or inefficiently the Indian bankruptcy system is functioning is because the insolvency, the insolvency and bankruptcy board of India, the regulator, publishes this information on a regular basis. So everybody is able, able to read that and, you know, have a view on how efficiently or inefficiently the system is functioning. And lastly, the insolvency regulator in the Indian context is also acting as an important thought leader by organizing workshops, conferences, the job that you know the folk, folks like Mr. Patra did before the IBC came in. Very few people, few people actually knew about the insolvency regime uh, before the IBC came in. But today, uh, you know, the, the regulator itself is doing so much to you know, uh, spread the word about uh, insolvency, the insolvency system, uh, and you know, essentially be the key, be a key thought leader in this space. Uh, yeah, so broadly, that's that's the role of the insolvency regulator. A very a very unique role, so to speak, given the Indian context. Thanks, Devansho. Samantha, do you want to add on 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 your uh, your analysis on some of the peculiarities of the Indian system? Well, yes, I. Um... As, as the question is framed by, by you, Yi Junior, in respect to the liquidation, uh, that um, there uh, isn't really, really any direct any provision in the insolvency and bankruptcy code that enables a direct uh, liquidation to be triggered for a defaulting company uh, for any reason whatsoever. But having said that, I must uh, also inform that uh, the intent of the code uh, from the day one was very clear that it is the creditors who get to decide collectively uh, whether the company should uh, go through a resolution process or it should be liquidated. Because the uh, intent of the code is very clear uh, that the, collect the responsibility of the stakeholders is to maximize the value of the assets of the competitor for the benefit of uh, the key stakeholders, uh, creditors being the primary of that. But of course, such a step could be taken by the creditors or a choice made uh, only after the admission of the petition and not before that. Once the committee of creditors is formed, which, which essentially takes place somewhere within three weeks or four weeks after the admission, the committee of creditors could uh, technically speaking, uh, and even legally speaking, at any point in time, decide that uh, they prefer liquidation as against restructuring. That is what the intent of the law always was. But it so happened that in one of the judgments uh, that came from the Supreme Court, uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court interpreted the uh, objectives of the court to mean that it is meant to attempt the revival of the enterprise and not liquidation. And liquidation is uh, to be seen as the last resort because the corporate death should be prevented, uh, if possible, by finding a resolution. Now, this actually was a proposition which was also not opposed by the government at that point of time, despite there being a provision to the contrary in the court, because uh, when the code was implemented, uh, 12 largest non-performing assets were uh, put into insolvency. And in respect of one of those, the lenders decided to uh, liquidate. And when that happened, one could see that there was a tension uh, because a large number of employees were expected to suddenly become jobless. And there was a fear of unrest in respect of 
that enterprise of people, the labor employees coming on the street and protesting, and it could be and becoming a law and order situation. So I think politically, the government felt that it was a sensitive issue uh, to have so many employees being rendered jobless, uh, even though there is an insolvency law where there is a potential of uh, a turnaround that could be explored. I think from that sense, it sort of became a policy of the government, uh, which was expressed through the jurisprudence, as I mentioned. And then it became a norm. Uh, but what became a bit more disappointing was that one of the judgments then later on from one of the bankruptcy courts came in to say that the, uh, the even in liquidation, once the liquidation order has been passed, you could still uh, attempt a resolution and save the enterprise and find a solution to keep it as a going concern. And therefore the concept of sale of the corporate as a going concern in liquidation evolved, which meant, uh, and a regulation was formed to say that the liquidator should mandatorily in the first 90 days attempt to sell the enterprise as a going concern or the business as a going concern. Uh, which, of course, uh, was a bit of a disappointment because uh, then it did not even allow an expedition liquidation, even though it was inevitable that one would find that happening. Uh, but it's like kicking the can down the lane and, and of course, compromising or putting the risk, putting to risk the value uh, preservation. But fortunately, if I may say, uh, there is some rethinking on that, both by the courts and by the policymakers. There is a clear realization that there is a valuation that happens if you delay liquidation when it is, the signs are very clear that that is the only possible outcome that one would expect uh, in, in certain circumstances. And we, but it's, it's going to take some time for us to be able to correct it uh, in form of some uh, another jurisprudence or perhaps some legislative changes. I don't think we are ready for it at the moment, but I'm quite sure going forward uh, that is inevitable. So, um, Eugenia, I'll move to the other one uh, now. Um, uh, the, so, uh, two uh, very other uh, aspects, very interesting and I, I would say even significant stories that come out of the insolvency and bankruptcy court, uh, which, I, I, which sort of make the IBC story very powerful is uh, the institution, the new institution of bankruptcy tribunals that was created um, by the court, and also the new discipline of insolvency profession that came into being as, as a product, as a byproduct of the code. And uh, why I say this is uh, a bit interesting is because the, the idea of having separate bankruptcy courts, uh, although uh, not under the IBC, but as a part of the Companies Act where the earlier insolvency regime sat was conceived almost eight to 10 years, even before the IBC as a policy. And it became part of an amendment that, that was introduced in the Companies Act. But that came to be challenged uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, initially it was challenged in one of the high courts, but came to the Supreme Court on the larger issue of tribunalization of Indian justice system uh, by taking over the powers of the high court and giving them to the uh, to the tribunals, which was a policy decision taken by the government to um, reduce the workload of the high courts and therefore reduce the backlogs and to vest some specialized jurisdictions, in particular with regard to the specialized areas, including economic laws to the tribunals. Uh, that judgment came much later, uh, where ultimately the constitutional validity of uh, that amendment of creating national company law tribunals was upheld, but with certain suggestions that were made by the court, which were also brought in uh, when IBC was uh, amended. So what the I, when the IBC was enacted, now what the IBC does is it creates, uh, it, it gives the jurisdiction of bankruptcy cases to the national company law tribunal as a special jurisdiction, because the national company law tribunals are created for company law disputes but a special jurisdiction was vested in them uh, through the IBC. And that is called as an adjudicating uh, jurisdiction. And that's why the tribunals are called as adjudicating authority when it comes to the IBC cases. And at the lowest of this three tier uh, infrastructure that is created is 
the adjudicating authority, which is responsible largely where uh, for three things. One is for admission of insolvency cases. Two, uh, a, a degree of oversight of the insolvency process to ensure that it is run uh, by the mandate of the law. And three, to approve the resolution plans that are approved by the committee of creditors. So broadly stating, these are the three rules. But at the same point of time, it has been held very clearly by a number of judgments from the Supreme Court now to say that the role of the adjudicating authority, even in these three, is very limited. Uh, they do not really have much, uh, if I may say, um, discretion in terms of who, which petition they can admit or which they cannot, because the debt is out there admitted, uh, especially in cases of financial creditors, the banks and financial institutions, is invariably clear that the loan has been taken and has not been paid, although what extent is payable or not payable can be disputed, but that's a different matter. So the courts have held that there isn't uh, much discretion with the adjudicating authority in respect of a division. As regards the process also, the jurisdiction is defined in the law itself, is limited to certain four and five key areas where there is a dispute between the lenders with regard to the charge priorities, and in some disputes with regard to the claims and some other areas. And is in respect of the approval of the resolution plan also, the Supreme Court has clearly held that these, uh, the commercial wisdom of the Committee of Creditors in approving the resolution plan is non-judicious, it cannot be challenged, and therefore the adjudicating authority cannot sit in judgment over the commercial wisdom of the COC. They can't replace it by their own wisdom. And uh, uh, in terms of the judicial review, they have a very narrow compass through which they have to measure uh, and view the resolution plan, which is also very clearly articulated. And it's very narrow and limited uh, in terms of the discretion. So therefore, that is how uh, the whole adjudicating authority discussion is. And any order of the adjudicating authority can be challenged in appellate forum, which is the second tier. And then, of course, before the Supreme Court. So the, this is a very significant kind of an institution that is created, which has really proven that uh, in a very short period of time, the Indian judges can learn very fast and come out with some very good cases. Uh, as far as the practitioners, I, I don't really want to say much is out there for everybody who will be really hearing this podcast to know that the practitioners from India have uh, proven to be top quality in terms of as uh, you know service providers. Suffice to say that um, uh, Indian policymakers took a huge risk by not grandfathering in anybody and starting it from the scratch, giving licenses uh, initially on a slightly convenient and lenient uh, terms but gradually making it very complex, rigid, uh, and cumbersome to get registrations. Today, we have more than 4,000 insolvency professionals, uh, and some of them are top quality. Uh, some of them have still to catch up, if I may say, uh, but they have made very significant contributions in uh, producing some very success, success stories out of IBC, including helping in um, resolving some of the very complex cases, including uh, cross-border cases, uh, group company cases, and uh, and I do believe that uh, they would only continue to shine going forward. Thank you. It's always good to finish on a very positive note, uh, uh, at least an answer to the question. Uh, this is not the end of our podcast, though. I do still have a couple of additional questions, um, and I would like Amanda to start uh, with a crystal ball question. Uh, look into the future, what do you think are the reforms on the pipeline and why do you think there is a need for further reform? Sumant? Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the government has been on the roll right from the day one uh, to make sure that the law remains very current and remains uh, very relevant. Uh, and therefore, uh, the amendments have been introduced from time to time to catch uh, uh, you know, whatever the developments are happening within India or outside. But I think there are four to five, on my if I may list, which are uh, the aspirations which have been expressed through uh, some of the reports, uh, some of the committees that have been set up and some of the papers that have been published from within the government or as part of the government think thinking. And I say it on those basis that one, there is a very clear thinking uh, based on the realization that the world has shifted over the last four or five years from a more formal court-based process 
to um, the hybrid of an informal and a formal and uh, pre-insolvency resolution therefore is something which is on the radar. The prepacks were introduced, but there is an attempt to take it to the next level by, by borrowing from the learnings of the international experience in particular in Europe as to see how the hybrid systems of insolvency resolution can be introduced. The cross-border insolvency has been on the radar for quite some time, but given what uh, uh, what is happening around the world and also, uh, you know, be mindful that the cross-border insolvency law may not really be something which um, the maybe to some extent be transcripted uh, into India in, in the way some of the other developed jurisdictions have done. There has been some some thinking to go a bit slow on that, but it appears that that is something which is going to happen very soon, including the group insolvency part of that. The third, if I may say, is uh, the big push on the use of information and technology. There is a realization that technology can play a very important role in expediting the cases, reducing um, the burden of the courts, and beside that, making the process more efficient and transparent. Uh, there is also a very clear uh, recognition that artificial intelligence is something that you one cannot ignore, um, and that therefore there is an investment of thinking into that area as well, if I may say. Uh, although not in the context or context of IBC, but if I may say, generally the context of insolvency, bank insolvency is the another big headline reform that is expected in uh, a couple of years. Uh, of course, we are all waiting waiting for the Unidroid uh, product to come out, uh, and based on that, one may see concrete steps, but surely even before that, there is a lot of thinking that has uh, been happening. And then lastly, if I may say, is uh, what is uh, also expected is how, uh, you know, one can make the Committee of Creditors' decision-making process more transparent, uh, more, um, and make them more accountable. That is more in the Indian context, because most of the Committee of Creators representatives come from public sector banks. So therefore it's a public interest issue and not just a pure simple commercial issues, which uh, applies to the parties to the case. And therefore there's some thinking on that. There's some, uh, I would say whispers of that as well. So I, I would say these are the many others, Eugenio, uh, that uh, seem to be on the policymakers table um, as of now. Thanks, Sumant. Uh, Dibansha, do you want to add anything on this? Um, do you think that Sumanta summarized uh, uh, everything that is on uh, the policymakers' table at the moment? Yeah, yeah, you do. You know, I think Mr. Batra has kind of covered it all, but I just want to briefly mention one thing. Uh, you know, when the law was originally enacted, it had a huge part on resolution of personal insolvencies. However, uh, you know, that part has not been rolled out yet. It has been rolled out in a limited way in relation to uh, personal guarantors to corporate debtors, uh, because that's kind of linked to the non-performing assets crisis that Mr. Patra described in the beginning. Uh, but I think with the growth of consumer finance in India and, you know, uh, so much of uh, money being lent out, so many, so many new products coming in where it's becoming increasingly, increasingly easier for people to take loans. I think, uh, you know, it might be useful for the government to start looking at it a little more closely and be prepared uh, before, you know, there is some kind of a crisis because in, you know, uh, the, you know, as we know, uh, you know, crisis, they follow a pattern, uh, you know, with so much of lending, there's bound to be a time where loans will go bad in the consumer finance space. And we unfortunately don't have a personal insolvency system to take care of that. I understand that the government might be worried about the possibility of discharges and the associated moral hazard problem in relation to uh, those discharges, especially uh, the kind of effect it might have on the growth of the consumer finance industry in India. But I think the law is already in place. The draft rules are also in place. It's only a question of implementation. But it's given the fact that the personal insolvency thing will have to be rolled out on a much wider scale in comparison to the corporate insolvency piece, I think it will require a lot of preparatory work. And I think uh, the government uh, may, may want to start consider doing that as we speak. Uh, that's, I think, the only thing. And the last thing, uh, Eugenio, is that, you know, uh, it's been seven years since the law has been enacted. And more or less, it's kind of settled down now. And while I understand uh, the ecosystem's uh, kind of expectations to kind of have more reforms, keep moving, make sure that you keep responding to every problem. But there is a risk of overkill that also exists where you try to solve every problem with an amendment or a change then you know you don't allow the law to kind of settle down 
and i think uh, uh, over a period of time you know it's the, the law the practitioner they should be allowed to uh, take care of the situation and the law should be allowed to settle down on its own instead of expecting the government to come out with policy interventions every time i think that's about it thank you and uh, i i like the fact that we had this uh, uh two or two acts and once smonsum and saying well this is what will happen and also the banshman highlighting i mean what should happen and what the government should consider so thank you so much for uh for this um I just want to conclude with a final question for uh, Sumant. Um, I mentioned in the, in the introduction that you recently founded the Insolvency Law Academy. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this organization and the projects that it's currently supporting? Well, thank you, Eugenia, for giving me the opportunity to be able to share um, about ILA. Uh, the Insolvency Law Academy uh, was set up as uh, an aspirational institution which would become one of the Institute of Excellence in Insolvency, similar to the Institutes of Excellence in the area of management and technology and law that have been set up over the established over the last 75 years of India's independence and which have actually been one of the key uh, institutional assets uh, of the country. And uh, this need was felt because uh, while a number of institutions have been set up under the insolvency and the bankruptcy code as a byproduct of the code. And as the Banshi was mentioning that most of them have now settled. Uh, it was, there was a need that was felt for a market-driven institution, which has created the market itself. Uh, what the ILA focuses is on largely two things, if I may say, uh, although there are multiple things that uh, one has in his vision. But, what, but the first and the foremost is uh, to develop a world-class research center uh, on insolvency, uh, which is capable of producing cutting-edge research, very focused on insolvency, and through that research, uh, help the policymakers take more informed and considered decisions going forward in terms of what needs to be done in, in shaping the future policy on insolvency, and do that in a very independent, neutral way uh, without us being ed us educating any particular stakeholders uh, agenda. The second uh, role is to help the insolvency industry constantly raise the bar uh, and its standards, because it's important that the insolvency industry develops and shapes at the same pace as the law, and there's no mismatch, and there's a level playing field. And therefore, there will be a lot of hand-holding through the ILA uh, to ensure uh, that the stakeholders have the support of the thinkers to be able to sort of make sure that there are voluntary codes, there are best practices, there are standard-setting documents and practices, yeah, and uh, the insolvency industry therefore becomes of a global standard. Uh, in terms of the projects, uh, there are multiple, and I may not be able to summarize all of them, but three, two or three which... I'm in particularly very excited about uh, and that where there have been significant progress is, is that we've been able to uh, establish out of eight chairs uh, that we seek to establish, uh, about five are already active. And, and these are with some of the key uh, players in the market, including the national law schools, some of the best national law schools. And uh, these are already active and already uh, significant work has started and hopefully in the next six to eight months, we will be able to come out of these three chairs, some very significant, uh, important uh, research, which will be of benefit, not just to India, but we believe the world at large. Uh, the second uh, very uh, important uh, step that we've been able to take is uh, to establish four regional centers, all of which two have already been announced, one for the southern region of the country and the other for the western. But the third for the Eastern region will announce uh, uh, on the 9th of this month uh, because there is some more work happening. And hopefully the fourth one will happen by the end of October. Uh, that way we would have the footprint uh, over the entire country. And all these uh, regional centers are with very formidable partners uh, in the country. The third is uh, that we're already working very closely now with 
all the key players, whether it's the Central Bank of India, whether it is the Securities and Exchange Board of India, whether it is the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Board of India, whether it's the Prime Minister's Office, uh, to see what studies that we can carry out or what research that we can carry out. To, uh, to the extent we are also now helping them design their conferences, the content of their conferences uh, uh, to that extent. And I think this is how it is. Besides that, of course, there are a number of studies uh, which uh, our uh, LinkedIn accounts uh, can be seen to sort of uh, see what other we are doing. And uh, our major platform to showcase our work is always our annual conference, which will be in Goa um, next year in the February, which is where we are hoping that uh, some of the thought leadership areas where we were undertaking our work um, is uh, one we'll be able to showcase. And I'll just very quickly list five of them uh, because uh, we would be able to sort of encompass and envelop most of our activities in these five key areas. The first is the bank insolvency, which is where we are hoping that we take the leadership role in, in, in thinking. Uh, and there are a number of steps that have been taken in that direction, including us having signed an MOU with the Unidroid to help them uh, uh, in that area, both ways. The second is the municipal debt restructuring, because that's the one key area in which we haven't done any work in, in India or in the region. And uh, we, together with Securities and Exchange Board of India, we have, uh, we're carrying out a major study in this area. And of course, we are partnering with the government and others in this area as well. The third is, as the bench mentioned, the personal insolvency and small and medium enterprise insolvency, which is again, we are hoping that we'll be able to make some significant contribution we're writing seven papers, research papers in this area over the next two years. And very quickly, uh, the fourth, I know I may not be able to list all the, the fourth is, the, the fourth is uh, for us, uh, the, uh, the next generation reforms, uh, which is where we keep an eye on the global developments and make sure that we constantly work with the international players like Insular International, III, Global uh, Restructuring Initiative in the Singapore, uh, SMU, and to make sure that uh, we are able to uh, complement their work and support their work and learn and also draw from them uh, as well in uh, carrying forward our work. So I'll pause here, uh, Eugenio. I know, I mean, I, I, I'm very excited and I can go on talking about it, but uh, but perhaps uh, as much for the time being. Thanks so much for this uh, uh, this outline, Samantha. I think that uh, this was uh, very comprehensive. Uh, um, as you mentioned, the Insolvency Law Academy does have uh, a website. So if you want to know more about the Insolvency Law Academy, please uh, do check their website. Uh, I also know that there is a conference that is being uh, uh, organized uh, uh, between 9 to the 11th of February 2024 in beautiful Goa. So again, if you want to uh, uh, interact with the Insolvency Law Academy, you are welcome to attend the conference as well. And for disclaimer purposes, I also have to say that I am involved in uh, the initiatives organized by the Insolvency Law Academy as then the co-chair of the Emerging Scholar Group. Uh, so if uh, you want to know more about the Insolvency Law Academy, you can also contact Sumant, or if you're an early career researcher, you are welcome to contact uh, 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 me for further information. Um, also, I have to say that uh, because Sumant, you mentioned it before this month, uh, I mean, we're recording this podcast in October 2023, so all the dates, all information is correct as to the state. Um, so thank you so much, Sumant and uh, um, uh, the Bancho for uh, joining uh, me in this, uh, this call today. It has been really great. Uh, having you and it, I think it has been a lovely conversation and I look forward to uh, hearing and having more of these conversations in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Global Perspectives. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Insolvency Institute. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes or Google Play.